Men, thank you guys. The, uh, the best songs that we sing are those that rehearse who God is, what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, the story of the gospel, the hope that we have in his death, burial, and resurrection, but also the hope that we have that he is coming again. And no matter what we face, no matter what happens here, we know that Christ will return and finish what he started, that his kingdom will come in power and in its fullness. And we look forward to that day. And as we, citizen kingdoms today, await that time, it is our joy to worship our Savior, to seek him, to know him, to rest in his promises. I want to ask you to bow with me as we pray, and we'll open God's word together. Father, we thank you for those truths that we've sung about what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, in washing us, cleansing us, bringing us into your family, establishing your church. Lord, we desire that all the glory today would go to you, that it would not be for us, it would be for you. Lord, receive all of our attention and our focus today. Pray that you'd clear our minds of distractions, the things that discourage us, the different weights and and cares that we bring in with us that weigh on our hearts and minds. Lord, give us a spiritual attentiveness this morning, a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit and what he desires to say to us and to do in us and through us. Lord, give us a holy hunger for your word and your truth. Jesus, you say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Give us a right hunger, Lord, and meet our needs today through the opening of your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the 20th chapter of Exodus. If you're visiting this morning, I want to welcome you and just uh, give you a heads up. We've been working through the book of Exodus since really summer. I believe it was late June, early July of 2020. And we've now come to Exodus chapter 20. And our text today is literally one of the mountaintop moments in the Bible. Literally, they're at the mountain, at Mount Sinai. And God has touched down on this mountain. His presence has been powerfully, gloriously, visibly, and physically manifested there at the mountain. And the people have gathered. They're trembling at the base of this mountain. And the scene has been set. And now, here in Exodus 20, God speaks. And what God says in the hearing of all of Israel is what is commonly known as the Ten Commandments. Literally, they are the ten words, the devarim, that God delivered to his people, not just to Moses, but to the assembly there at Mount Sinai. These are ten moral obligations for the children of Israel, and they will be written down in stone, written by the finger of God himself, and kept in the Ark of the Covenant for many generations to come. This is a very rich text, and it's one that's honestly going to take us many weeks to go through. In the future, um, I I plan to sort of look at the law itself as its own topic, and I'm going to take a week to deal with each of these commandments and and to sort of let them speak uh, each on their own. Um, So today's message is not intended to be a full exposition of the Ten Commandments. We'll do that in the weeks to come. Rather, what I want to do today is, is walk through this narrative. These commandments are given to us in the context of a story. And I'd like to walk through this and keep our eyes on the movement of this story to get a sense of what exactly is happening in this incredibly significant moment. 
And before we jump in, it's essential to maintain a sense of context. If you're with us in our adult Bible class this morning, Stephen Parkin talked to us about uh, the interpretation of Scripture and understanding its clarity. And part of that is knowing the context in which a given verse or statement or even a story um, is presented. And these Ten Commandments, although we see them written in various places standing alone, and they say much just in and of themselves, they come in the flow of this story. God has brought these people out of Egypt, and he did so with great signs and wonders. Then he leads them through the Red Sea and then through the wilderness, and now they have arrived at their destination. They were intended to arrive here at Mount Sinai all along. And in chapter 19, God had, through Moses, called these people to stand before him, to, to gather together in a great assembly. And he had made this proposal in chapter 19. You can see it in verse 4 if you flip back a page or two. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God has proposed to the people. And the people, a few verses later, answer, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And because they respond in this way, God says, Okay, then prepare yourself, because I am coming. And God manifests his glory here, wrapping the mountain in smoke, announcing his presence with the sound of a loud trumpet. There's great thunder, there's flashing of light, there's an earthquake. The holy God has drawn near. And as the earth shook, and as the people who stood on that ground, they themselves trembled as well. Now, now, at this point in the story, God begins to speak. Chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first commandment in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. He then goes on to give the third commandment in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth commandment, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The fifth in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness. And the tenth, you shall not covet. Verse 18 tells us, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and of the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak for us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. There's basically three parts to our text this morning. The preamble is verses 1 and 2, where God announces himself and, and, and introduces himself as the speaker and the giver of the law. The commandments, the second section, 
is verses 3 through 17. And then we find the people's response to all this in verses 18 through 21. And the point of all of this, what we draw from this, the message is this. The giving of the law is rooted in who God is, what God has done for us, and it reveals what he wants from us. It's a little bit of a longer statement, so I'll I'll give it to you again. The giving of the law is rooted, grounded in who God is, in what God has done for us, and it reveals what he wants from us. I want to walk through this, sort of break it down into three parts today. Number one, the giving of the law is rooted or grounded in who God is. It's grounded in who God is. Verse one, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I think because this text is maybe familiar for some of us and because we know how important these Ten Commandments are, it's easy for us to sort of gloss over the preface and to read too quickly through this preamble to these ten words, the Ten Commandments. But it's important that we see God is laying here a foundation for his law. A strong grasp of what God is saying in this preface, in this introduction, is essential if we're going to rightly receive what he says and rightly respond to what it is that he commands. The first thing that he tells these people as they've gathered together, as they're trembling there on the mountain with thunder and lightning, the first thing he says to them is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. This is his divine name, Yahweh. The name that had been revealed to Moses once before on this very mountain. If you remember, in time past, Moses had come to this mountain, seen a bush that was burning yet not consumed. And as he drew near, God said, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And he went on to tell him his name. I am Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is the eternal, unchanging, self-existent, self-sustaining, transcendent God. That is who is talking from the mountain. This self-declaration is actually repeated throughout the speech in verse 5. In verse 7, in verse 10, and in verse 12, he keeps coming back to this. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. It is important that they never forget who it is who is talking to them. The announcement of God's name here means, first of all, that the law carries divine authority. It carries a divine authority. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 5, Moses had come to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. And do you remember what Pharaoh said? He said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Listen, knowledge of God goes hand in hand with obedience and submission to him. Pharaoh didn't know who he was dealing with. And he scoffed at God's command to let Israel go. Well, God would show him exactly who he was. He would show the people of Egypt exactly who he was. He would show the children of Israel exactly who he was. Again and again, we see that the plagues and these great signs and mighty wonders were done so that everyone would know that he is the Lord. And it was this same God, Yahweh, 
The Lord, who is here speaking to them. The Lord God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Reminding them that they're not just hearing the words of God. They're actually hearing God. God himself. That was the God who is now speaking with thunder and lightning and smoke billowing up into heaven. And the reason for all of this manifestation of glory, the reason that God gives these words audibly, not just to Moses to write down and later repeat to the people, he wants all of them to hear it directly, is because they needed to know who spoke these words. They needed to know where it came from. They needed to know that it held divine authority. This giving of the law is rooted in who God is. It reflects his divine authority. He has the authority to command Pharaoh to let his people go. He has the authority to command creation itself to obey his wishes. God tells the sun not to shine, and it doesn't. God tells the water to turn to blood, and it does. God tells the locusts to move in, and they do. He tells the frogs to leave, and they obey. He tells the sea to split, and it does. He tells the bread to fall from heaven, and the molecules of the universe assemble into manna, saying, yes, Lord, we will do your wishes. God commands water to come out of the rock, and it does. He turns the bitter water to fresh. The creation itself responds to the authority of God. And God has the authority to command his people as well. As they listen to the giving of the law, God reminds them first and foremost who he is. I am the Lord. And this means that his law carries divine authority. But the law being rooted and grounded in who God is also means that more than just carrying divine authority, the law also reflects God's divine character. It shows us his nature. It's an expression of what God is like. Often today, people wrestle with the law of God, whether the Ten Commandments or other commands found in Scripture. People struggle to understand it. It seems foreign sometimes to our modern sensibilities. People struggle to love and embrace God's law as good. But the more we come to know God, the more we understand what he is really like and see him clearly as he truly is, the more we will come to understand and embrace and delight in his law because the law is an expression of his character, his perfections, his nature. If we don't know God, if we don't understand what God is like, his law will seem foreign to us. It will be perhaps offensive even to us. It will be confusing to us. And the reason is because our moral sensibilities have been shaped not by God, but by our own intuitions and by the bankrupt wisdom of the world. And that's why God's law seems so strange or difficult to so many people. Our culture has lost any sense of moral sanity. I probably don't have to convince you of that. By erasing God, by deifying the self, we have introduced total moral chaos, confusion. What's the solution for all of this? To see God as he is, to recognize that we are created to reflect his glory. We are made in his image. We are to be like him in certain ways. Yes, there are ways in which God is utterly separate and distinct and we can never compare. But there are other ways in which we are to conform to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
God's law helps us to see the specific ways in which God's attributes should shape the way that we live. These commands are not random. They are not arbitrary. You say, why these 10 and not a different 10? Why 10 and not five? Or why 10 and not 30? Listen, every one of these laws reveals to us something about God, his nature, his essence, and his character. We can just do a quick skate through these commandments and see. The first command to have no other God before him shows us something about God. That he is holy, meaning he is unique. There's no one like him. He's in a category by himself. He is sovereign. He is supreme over all other claims to power, over all other claims to authority and rule. God alone stands as God. This means that he must be therefore worshiped exclusively because of who he is. The second commandment tells us not to make any images of this God, not to use any, anything in creation to try to picture the creator. The reason is because of who God is. God is spirit. And he transcends the creation. So don't use images of creation or created images to try to represent him. It doesn't work. We're commanded not to take his name in vain. Why? This too tells us something about God. He is a jealous God. And he is to be honored. He is to be feared. This means we cannot take his name in vain. We're commanded to remember the Sabbath. This too comes directly from God. He is wise, and we follow his wise example in resting on the seventh day. He is good, and in resting from our work, we demonstrate our trust in his provision. The fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, is because God is the God of all authority, and he delegates that authority. He delegates it, among other things, to parents. And it is right that we recognize that God has placed certain people in authority over us. And we are to honor that. We are to submit to that. And even in particular, we are to honor his design for the family. This comes from God. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. We know that God is the author of life and that God is also sovereign over death. It is not our right. It is not our prerogative to decide to end the life of another person simply of our own accord. As God, his glory is reflected in those who bear his image, and therefore violence against a human being is an attack on the glory of God, an image bearer of God. The reason we're not commanded to murder is because of who God is. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. God is faithful. God keeps his promises so should we. God's love is pure and holy. Ours is supposed to be as well. The eighth commandment says you shall not steal. This too flows from who God is. God is the owner of all things, and he assigns those things to whom he wills. To steal is to reject God's sovereign assignment of personal property, and it's to demonstrate a discontentment or a distrust that God's actually given me the things that I need. The sin of stealing reflects a rejection of God. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, comes from the fact that God is a God of truth and a God of justice. He does not lie. Lying is counter to his person and counter to his purposes. Therefore, we are not to lie, not to bear false witness against another. And the tenth commandment, you shall not covet 
tells us that God cares not only about our actions, but also about our hearts. It's not just right deeds that God is interested in. It is right desires that he desires to see in us. And we'll go through these more in depth in the future. But listen, these commands, God's law, is rooted in God's own character. It shows us what he is like and how we are to live in response to who he is. And it means that to reject the law, to reject God's commandments, that's not only rejecting God's authority, which is bad enough. It's actually to reject God himself. It's an attack on God's sovereignty. It's an assault on his goodness. It's a rebellion against his righteousness. It's resisting and fighting against his purity and his holy character. This is why Romans 1 connects suppressing the knowledge of God with the rise of moral degeneracy. Those two things go hand in hand. Those who know God and fear him will become like him. This means, as we'll discuss in future weeks, that these commandments are actually eternal. They are written in stone for a reason. They are never intended to be canceled. They're never intended to expire. Because if these things were to stop being relevant for us, that would mean that God would have to stop being God. This is why Jesus said in Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void to become empty, to become meaningless, to become irrelevant. In fact, these 10 words, these 10 commandments, as we study scripture, we come to understand that they are not actually something new. Yes, they are being written down here for the first time, but this is simply the formalizing of truths that had been apparent since the point of creation. I want you to consider the first sin. Go back to the garden and and imagine with me that story. You know what happened. God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from one tree. Satan came, tempted, deceived, and man fell. Consider that the first sin in the garden was actually coveting, not in the eating. Desiring something that was not theirs that God had said was not theirs and desiring to take it to themselves. This coveting which broke the 10th commandment, was based on a lie, a violation of the 9th commandment, a lie that had been told by Satan. This lie, believing this lie and, and acting on their covetous desire was akin to murder because it resulted in the death of the human race. It was a dishonoring of their heavenly father. It was stealing from a tree he had told them not to eat from. Instead of resting in the goodness of God's abundant yes, they profaned his name by violating the one no that he had given them. And in doing so, they sought to make themselves gods instead of worshiping the one true God. That's a violation of every one of the Ten Commandments in reverse order. So these words, these Ten Commands, they're not foreign. They're not new. It's not some never-before-heard-of you know, moral injunction. No, these, this is the codifying in covenantal terms the moral obligation of God's people to live in light of who he is and what he is like. So the giving of the law is grounded in who God is. That's why he introduces it. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. God's people are to embrace his law 
as his authoritative word and as the expression of his divine perfections, his perfect character. So the giving of the law is grounded in who God is. But secondly, it's also grounded in what God has done. So look at verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Listen, as God stands to give this law to his people, we have to remember that there is a relationship involved here. One that is covenantal in nature. It actually starts back with Abraham. The God who speaks is the God of promise. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who made an unconditional covenant with them. He had become their God. And now he is entering into a covenant through Moses here with the descendants of those patriarchs. The God who spoke these 10 words is not just a God. He's even more than just the God. Specifically, he is their God. I am the Lord, your God. We know this is God's purpose. We saw this back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, where God spoke to Moses and said to him, and again, bracketing this speech with his name, he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And listen to this statement. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. As God gathers his people together, he reminds them who he is. I am the Lord, but he is specifically their God. There is a covenant relationship that, that is the context in which this law is given. They're his people. He is their God. And this relationship, and this is important, is not entered into by keeping the law. They already have this relationship. This relationship, this covenant has been initiated by God's grace. He chose them. He loved them. He redeemed them and brought them to himself. And now it is his right. After displaying his loyalty to them on his end of the relationship, to ask that they receive and obey his law. And show loyalty to him. You see, God rehearses not just that there's this relationship. He says, I am the Lord, your God. But he also reminds them what he's done for them. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, God is not just a God of disembodied attributes. When he says, I am the Lord, yes, he is holy, he is just, he is true, he is sovereign, he is omnipotent. Those are all of his attributes. But God has acted in history upon, on their behalf. And they know him through his works, based on what he has done. He says, I did this for you. 
He is the God of redemption, the God of their salvation. And he hasn't just shown up randomly and started telling them what to do. He first saves them and redeems them, provides for them, draws them near. And now they are being called to show loyalty to his name. He says, I am your God. I've been faithful to you. Now here is how you must respond to me. Their obedience to the law is to show loyalty to the name of their God, to show their gratitude and their thankfulness for the profound grace that this God has demonstrated on their behalf. Specifically, God says what he did for them. He redeemed them out of the house, specifically here, of slavery. Slavery. Remember what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may serve me. Formerly, they had served a wicked master, a master who crushed them, a master who oppressed them, a master who kept them from being what God intended. And now their loyalties are to be diverted to this new master, a master who redeems them and brings them out into freedom, and a master who has good and gracious purposes for them. They are to serve no longer a cruel Pharaoh, but a good and holy God. And this law is going to show them what this new life of freedom should look like. And this would provide the moral and spiritual foundation for their new society. This is a, a rowdy bunch that's just been brought out of slavery and there's very little structure or organization to this nation. And this law is not only showing them how they're to respond to God, it's also going to bless them. It is for their good because it will bring moral order and blessing to their nation. Immorality and lawlessness will only bring chaos and disaster and pain and regret. But obedience to this law will ensure that they enjoy this precious freedom from slavery for many generations to come. The giving of the law is grounded in what God has done for them. It's grounded in his covenant. It's grounded in his act of gracious redemption for them. And they need to never forget that. So as they approach God's laws, they prepare to hear these commandments. They need to know who God is and remember what God has done for them. So the giving of the law is rooted in who God is, what he does for us. But third, the giving of the law is intended to produce the proper response in us. The proper response in us. And this is a point that's drawn really from verses 18 through 21. As God speaks these words to his people, as he gives them the commands... It becomes too much for the people to handle. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. As God delivers his law, the people are here experiencing sensory overload, and they cannot take it any longer. They actually beg for this to stop because they're terrified. And notice what they say. First of all, they ask Moses to be their mediator. They say, you speak to us. They said, we can listen to your voice. So you go up and talk to God. You receive everything he wants us to know, and then tell us what he said but we can't tolerate this direct revelation any longer. And this is actually not a bad idea because it is, in fact, what God had planned for Moses. He had appointed Moses to be a mediator. Now, Moses was a mere mortal like them. He was a sinner just like them. So it's not like Moses was somehow naturally more fit to enter into God's presence than, than they were. 
No, but God had graciously appointed Moses to this task. God had granted to Moses a unique access that no other person had. So Israel needed the ministry of Moses. They needed him. They needed what God was going to do through Moses. Moses had been and would continue to be the one who spoke to them for God and the one who spoke to God for them. That's what a mediator does. It's a representative. It's a a go-between. And they ask Moses to do this for them. So their request is really fine. It's in keeping with, with God's pattern here. And Moses does not rebuke them for asking. But their reason for their request does get a response from Moses. The reason they ask Moses to do this is because they think they're going to die. And that's why they are afraid, that's why they're trembling, and that's why they're standing very far off. And notice how Moses responds to this. Moses said to the people, verse 20, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Moses says, listen, don't be afraid like that. It's interesting as you're reading this, he says, don't be afraid, but God is doing this so that you will fear him. And that can almost be confusing to us. But we need to understand, first of all, why they shouldn't be afraid specifically of death. That's what they thought was going to happen. They thought God was going to kill them. They thought they were going to be consumed by his holiness. They thought that to continue to experience the sound of his voice would cause them to come apart at the seams. They thought they were going to die. But Moses reminds them that this is not God's purpose. It's not God's purpose. Look at what he says. Do not fear. Why? For God has come to test you. He has come to test you, not to terminate you. That is not what God is doing. God's purpose is not to destroy his people. We know God's purpose for them because we saw it at the beginning of chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. God desires to take them as his treasured possession, that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's his purpose. He's not drawn near to kill them. We see this over and over again in in the Pentateuch. And despite their constant suspicion that God has brought them out of Egypt just to kill them in the wilderness... Again and again, they have to be reminded that's not God's plan for you. So for them to be afraid that God is going to kill them means they're missing, they're forgetting, they're not understanding God's purpose. It also doesn't fit God's promise. We've talked much about the covenant today. God's promise is to make them a great nation and bring them into the land of Canaan. If he kills them all at Mount Sinai, it means he's broken that promise. So Moses assures them, listen, Don't be afraid. He has not come here to kill you, but to test you. Remember God's purpose. Remember God's promise. Now, you can be a little bit sympathetic to these people because just a few moments before this, they have been warned. Don't come near to the mountain. Do not set foot or touch the mountain or else you will die. So there is a warning there. They are right to understand that God's holiness can be deadly to a sinful people. That's true. But they've actually not really understood the warnings that God gave them. Because the implication of God's warnings, do not touch the mountain or you will die, is that if you don't touch the mountain, you won't die. There's actually good news in those warnings. In God's prohibitions, there's actually safety and comfort for us. But they're not getting it. It's not sinking in. So Moses accepts their request to be their mediator, but he speaks to their fear 
He says, do not be afraid. And he calls them to something better. He says, God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He says, listen, God has not come to slay you, but to sober you and to sanctify you, so that you will take his word seriously, that the fear of him may be before you, and to sanctify you. This, these commands, this law, the manifestation of power and glory is to motivate them to obedience, not to make them fear for their life. The fact that Moses says, do not fear, but then tells them God's intention is that the fear of him might be before them. It tells us that there's different kinds of fear. There's different kinds of fear. The proper kind of fear takes seriously that the law comes with divine authority. The right kind of fear recognizes that our obligations to obey the one who made us and redeemed us are real and they are heavy. The right kind of fear desires to avoid the discipline of God and avoid the disastrous consequences of breaking his law and gives us instead a desire to experience his ongoing blessing. That's what Moses means by this is meant to, to keep you from sin, that you may not sin. That's the kind of fear that they needed. The kind of fear that thinks they're going to die that forgets God's purposes and forgets God's promises and misunderstands God's warnings, that kind of fear lacks faith and it shows unbelief. Their response to all of this is really remarkable. It tells us in verse 18 that they saw, but their reaction and Moses' instruction to them tells us they did not really see. Listen, it is possible to see without seeing it is possible to hear without hearing. It's possible for the very word of God to be only so much noise and you pick up on certain parts of it but fail to grasp God's purposes, fail to believe God's promises, and fail to understand the truth of what it is that he is saying. Their response was one of fear, but it was an improper fear, a fear that lacked faith, a fear that was focused not on worship, but on self-preservation, a fear that lost sight of God and his promises and his purposes. And I think this scene is instructive for us. Those who may be in the room today who become aware of God, who become aware of his glory, who get a, a sobering sense of his power and his majesty and his holiness, and, and, and you hear these things in the law, you are being confronted with a choice, a choice of how you are going to respond to God's revelation of himself. And the choice is this. You can either run from God like these people did, being afraid, afraid of being exposed to the light of his truth and his holiness and his word. Or you can respond in faith, not running from God, but running to him, specifically to the mediator he has provided. Running away instead from sin and running to God. That's your choice. You can run from God in fear or you can run to him in faith. You can turn away from your sin and embrace all that he is and all that he says. 
The right kind of fear will run from sin and directly to God's mediator. The people of Moses' day were blessed in that God had appointed this man, Moses, to be their mediator. They needed that. We also need a mediator, and God has provided one for us. A mediator even better than Moses. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus offers himself to us today as a mediator. He is the one that we run to when we sense the thunder of God's holiness and the weight of the law. Jesus reveals God to us as the word made flesh. Jesus speaks to God on our behalf and represents us to God. And he has done more than just speak to God on our behalf with his mouth. Jesus has died on the cross. Paul says, giving himself as a ransom, a ransom for sinners. Hebrews 12, 24 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was the son of Adam and Eve, the brother of Cain. Cain killed him. And Genesis tells us that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground to God. What was that word that the blood of Abel spoke? It was crying out for justice, crying out for God to judge sin. But the blood of Jesus, who willingly laid down his life, cries out to the Father and speaks a better word. Telling the Father, reminding him that justice has already been rendered. That is what the cross means. That the penalty for the law ha has already been punished. It cries out not for justice. The blood of Jesus cries out instead for mercy. Declaring to the Father that our sins have already been judged at the cross. This is who Jesus is. He is our mediator. The one who represents us to God. The one who reveals God to us. And listen, sinners like us need a mediator. And Jesus is the only one who can do it. Paul tells Timothy there is one mediator between God and men. And it is the man, Christ Jesus. God himself has provided in sending his son what we need. The one who reveals the fullness of the glory of God to us. The word made flesh. John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus reveals God to us, mediates God to man. And he also mediates between man and God. His blood speaking a better word than the blood of Abel, crying out not for justice, but declaring our forgiveness, declaring God's gracious salvation of our souls. We need a mediator. And the word of the gospel calls us to respond to these truths by running not from God, but running from our sin, to turn from our sin, to repent of our sin, and to flee to Christ to place our faith and hope in him, to believe in the power of his shed blood, to trust him to be our savior. Moses told the people that day, do not fear, God has not drawn near to you to kill you. He's come to test you and to motivate you to obedience. 
And God tells us today as we sit under the authoritative, powerful word, he tells us that those who are in Christ need not fear condemnation. God draws near to reveal his law to us, not to condemn us, not to sentence us to hell. His holiness is not going to kill us because the penalty has already been paid. The mediator has sanctified us. God has drawn near to test us. His law exposes us. It shines light on our lives and shows us where we fall short so that we might be instructed and compelled to live a life of gratitude to the God who saved us, to live a life of obedience and praise to the one who has already brought us near to himself. The giving of the law we find here in Exodus 20 is rooted in who God is and in what God has done for us, and it reveals what God wants from us. What God desires in you and me is a proper fear of him. The kind of fear that runs from sin and runs directly into the arms of his appointed mediator. May we respond rightly to all that God is and all that he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that those who are sinners, those who deserve death, can be saved, can be sanctified, can be made clean, can be forgiven can be accepted by you because of what your son Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, for those of us who feel the sting and the weight of the law this morning, I pray that we would glory in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that we would recognize he is our hope, that we would turn from our sin and repentance and flee to him in faith, believing that he is our Savior. Lord, if there's some here today who don't know you, who have not fled from their sin, who are still in love with this world, who are still really surrendered not to the authority of, of Christ, but to the authority of their own desires, their own flesh, I pray that today they would be broken before you. I pray that today sinners would recognize that you are the Lord, that you have all authority and that your law is perfect and it reveals your perfections I pray, God, that as they hear these things, they would feel compelled to run to Christ. Lord, for those of us who know you, who have embraced the amazing, amazing promise of the gospel, I, I ask, God, that as we engage and embark on this study of your law in the coming weeks and months, that you would help us to see and understand who you are and what you are like, and that you would direct us into your will, that we would live holy and obedient lives, that we would become, as you desire, your treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests who fulfill your purposes. We pray, God, that you would use your word. Use it today to instruct us, to encourage us, and most importantly, to show us who you are. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.